Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time you are tuning in. Welcome to Homesteading and Gardening in the Suburbs. I'm Emma from Misfit Gardening and today I am sharing a wonderful interview that I did with Noah from Boomy Devi Seeds, which is a local seed company here in Maine. They grow all of their seeds on the farm and sell them directly to gardeners and farmers and they're really working to help produce these local food systems. And if you've been listening to the podcast a while, you know that I really, really am passionate about regionally adapted seeds, growing plants that thrive where you live so you can have a more reliable harvest and you can more reliably produce food given the different in weather conditions or pests or diseases or things that are naturally going to be thrown at your garden and having a lot of biodiversity in your garden and cultivating a healthy ecosystem is going to really help your garden thrive. Now Noah is going to be talking about some things that you might have overlooked in your own garden that could be impacting how well your garden's growing but full disclosure I will let you know that I was having a number of technical difficulties during this interview and the interview does cut out a little bit at the end but if you want to find out more then you can head on over to Bumi Devi Seeds and their website which is linked up in the podcast description and they have got such a wealth of information that is available there for you to read And even I was able to learn something new by reading their growing practices. So that was really neat. And of course, you can check out the seeds that they have available. And I think they are just opening up at the time that this goes live, their CSA for the year. So check out their seed CSA, which is a really interesting concept. And I love that idea. So without further ado, let's dig in and learn a bit more with Noah from Bume Devi Seeds. Go ahead and just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Okay, well, my name is Noah Dest. My wife's name is Olivia O'Dwyer, and we are seed farmers, which uh, most people, when you say I'm a seed farmer, think that you're growing pumpkin seeds for roasting or flax seeds for <laughs> making muffins or something. But uh, yeah, not a lot of people know that seeds that we plant in our garden um, need to be farmed by somebody and we've decided to do that and we've decided to grow a diverse array of seeds not just uh, focusing on one or two we try to grow all of the seeds that we offer through our seed company Um, so brassicas um, kale and cabbage and um, we grow chard we grow all the cucumbers and melons and pretty much everything that you can think of with uh, a couple things that we're working up towards. Um, And that is pretty much the gist of what we do. We grow the stuff, we save the seeds and we can eat some of it in between. So it's a nice job. We like it and we enjoy seeing the whole life cycle of the plant. Awesome. And you guys are also in New England, like I am. And that's definitely got some unique challenges as a seed farmer here because some crops you're not going to get seeds in one season right that's right yeah yeah a lot of um some of the biennials are kale carrots 
um, leeks. Um, there's lots in each family um, that do take two years to get a crop, which is a long time. And that leaves a long time for things to go wrong, too. So uh, it's a pretty big investment um, to of time and money and labor and everything. Um, so, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of things that challenges that we have here that um, make it sort of challenging, but also make it fun. And, and it definitely gets your um, mental juices flowing to try to figure out all the problems that you encounter. I'm sure you have many stories of uh you know um ingenious things you've come up with in order to either get your food or get your seed or <laughs> yeah yeah and every, every year it's something different as well yeah <laughs> so what works is. from one year doesn't necessarily work for the next so. yeah yeah <laughs> so why is it important for you to be a seed farmer um i think that one big reason why we got into this was um, the lack of people doing it. Um, it was really a big shock to us um, to know and learn of the amount of genetic diversity and, you know, varieties of all of the different crops, be it vegetable or medicinal uh, herbs that we have lost over the years Um because of the transition into a more industrial, you know, type of society where food can be grown um, in one square corner of the universe and shipped to the other. And um, that was alarming, but also um, the, the diversity and the uniqueness and the color and the shape and the texture of, of all of those different seeds and different varieties is something that we couldn't bear to see being lost. And since it didn't seem like there was a lot of people doing it, certainly there are a lot of people doing it, but uh, not enough people um, saving seed, even just one or two of things that they like and enjoy to eat. Um, we felt really compelled to get into that as well as it's just, it's really neat. You, you learn a lot about plants by watching them go to seed and by tending them through their vegetative and the reproductive stages because um, you learn that their life's just like us and and their leaves or their fruit is not not um, not just there by its own accord it, it has a, a purpose um, and it's a it's a very intimate process and and it's very fun so that's another reason why we got into it too is it's just fun <laughs> so how did you start your company and what kind of drove you to start it other than you know trying to keep some of that diversity going <laughs> um, to start with or did you work in farming beforehand we worked in farming we've worked in farming for about 10 years and we've we met on a farm as well um and we had both always been interested in plants. And ever since we started working in agriculture, we definitely tended gardens and homesteaded and uh, were very interested in growing our own food. And and once we ate our own food, we couldn't eat food from away anymore because the quality is just worlds different. Um, so I think that trying to carve out our own path in agriculture was one reason why we started the seed company because we knew that it's what we wanted to do 
as far as livings go. Um, so we knew we had to kind of carve out a path in that. And we did sell a little bit of produce and still sell a little bit. But um, but ever since we worked with our mentor, Will Bonsall, who is in Maine, like like you and I, I think he's out in industry. Um, ever since learning about seed saving, we became more interested in that aspect. And especially because we felt that there should be more people doing it. And there aren't, you know, a lot of places to get locally grown seed. There are seed companies um, where we are, um, but not that seed isn't grown locally. At least the majority of it isn't. But to my knowledge, it isn't. Um, there are, there are definitely some seed companies over here that do try to, um, uh, contract as locally as they possibly can. And some of it is in the state, but there's not a lot of local production. And so I think that that was really important to us. And so we just, since we loved it, um, we felt it should be done and we wanted to carve out a living for ourselves. It was just kind of a natural step from there. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about um, your garden and your farm, because I mean, sort of off offline, that doesn't sound right, uh, but it's the term that everybody uses, right? We were kind of chatting a little bit about, um, you know, how your soil and there's things that can be wrong with your soil that it's not necessarily like you as a gardener that might be having trouble but it could actually be some stuff with the soil. So a lot of my listeners are pretty new to gardening and, you know, trying to grow their own food for the first time. So what are some of the tips that you might want to give them for starting their first garden? Yeah, I think uh, I do hear that a lot from um, first-time gardeners and even from people who have uh, gardened for a while that, uh, they feel like they're just not doing something right because the plants aren't growing. And um, I am, I always say there's only two things that you have to do. It's really simple to grow plants. If you can just get two things, which is organic matter, leaves, straw, um, compost, manure, um, you know, organic matter that, that contains lots of nutrients in it. If you have enough of that in your soil, and your soil pH, which is kind of more the chemistry side of soil, uh, it's a measure of acidity. If the pH is appropriate, between 6 and 8 is usually for most crops um, the sweet spot. If you can get those two things, you can grow anything and you will grow it well. Um, so when troubleshooting for new gardeners or you know gardeners who may just be having an issue with a crop... Um, I would always start with those two because other than that, you know, mother nature does the rest of it unless uh, a squirrel gets it, but that's mother nature too. So um, she really takes care of the rest. As long as we keep the ground fertile and the pH in the appropriate spot for the garden crops that we're growing or the specific crop that you're growing, then there's really nothing more to it. So the good news is it's actually quite simple. So how would a gardener find out the pH of their soil? I know how, how I would do it, but that's because I'm a chemist. 
<laughs> oh, you're a chemist. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm like a whole other level of garden nerd. Oh. Um, but, <laughs> but, well, I'll but... defer to you for all of the, um, the information <laughs> on that, then. But is is there a way other than, you know, pulling out a soil test kit? Or, I mean, is, is that the easiest way for a gardener to find it out? Or are they actually better off doing um, a soil sample and getting that tested by a lab? Because obviously there's a price difference between those two. Yeah. And one seems to be a lot more complicated than than the other. Yeah. And I haven't done an at-home test before. I've only sent off to labs. Um, and in Maine, it's reasonably cheap. I don't know other places what the what the cost is. I know when we were in New Hampshire, we would still send to Maine because they didn't have a lab, but it was only $15 to, to get a test from Maine. So we've always done it through university. So I really can't speak to at-home tests and accuracy and things like that. I think oh, what I... Funny. Yeah, so I've only done at home tests and I've not never sent it into a lab. Really? Wow. Well, you're a chemist, so you are a lab. <laughs> I'm my own lab. Yeah. yeah, and um I what I do what I like about the um the university lab tests is we can get a sense of not just pH, we can get a sense of micronutrients. And also the big nutrients, you know, the major nutrients, as well as calcium and magnesium. And um, it gives us a really, a really good picture of, of, you know, where our soil is at. So I recommend that, but I, I think it's great if people want to do it themselves, because for everything that you do yourself, you learn a little bit more about it and it just brings you closer to the process. So if you have time and, and, and can do it. I mean, I don't see, I don't know if any, either one is better, but maybe you have, can shed some light on the process that you do. I mean, for, for me, I just get the standard off the shelf test kits and then run those. But I, I like to take lots of different samples because I'm, so my garden's no till. And I find that if I'm getting like a lot of organic matter in there like wood chips and stuff like that um it can throw off like the rate readings and stuff for me so I have to yeah. really kind of let things like settle out um whereas in the lab you know you're probably dissolving things up and you know running it through filters and stuff so you're not getting yeah. like a lot of the extraneous matter that's in there but because oh, for a lot of them it's a color test so if you've got like a lot of particles kicking about like you would if you've got like a high amount of organic matter in your soil then it's kind of hard to read sometimes um but I mean that that's a question that I get asked a lot and I'm sure you might get it as well as can you add too much organic matter to your soil yeah I mean my answer is always no and I've also heard that from every other farmer I've ever worked for because there's no um, other than messing up your soil test, there's no um, downside to having that organic matter. Um, there, there can be, there can be issues if you put a lot in and you till it in and incorporate it right away, and then try to plant into it. That can rob nitrogen. Um, if you add it to the surface of the soil, it won't rob anything, and it will slowly break down. Or if you 
till it in in the fall, it should be uh, reasonably well incorporated by the springtime. So there's definitely a way to add organic matter. And each one I think would be different. And I think also, you know, which crop you're doing and when you're planting it. And that's, you know, taking that all into consideration too. But uh, there can't be too much. As far as I'm concerned, there can't be too much. The more, the better. Do you have a favorite way to add organic matter to your garden areas or farm areas, I guess? Growing spaces. It's called growing spaces. Definitely do. Uh, I think we use a lot of leaves because we've always had access to a lot of leaves. We're always surrounded by forest. Um, So we collect our own leaves, um, hardwood forest. Um, So we like to do a lot of mulching with leaves. And usually we'll try to follow a cover crop with a mulch. So we'll, if we have a cover crop going, we'll cut it down, mulch it, and then we can transplant right into that. Um, we haven't made a ton of compost. We've made some, but um, I love the ease of cover cropping and mulching and have had really good success with it. And we don't have, we have access to a tractor right now, but we don't really use a lot of um, gas powered mechanical equipment. We do a lot of hand powered equipment. So, um, you know, turning big piles of compost has always been a daunting thing. So we haven't really used a lot of compost. We do a lot of teas, nitrogen teas, or, you know, compost teas where you're mixing in grass clippings and maybe some food scraps and, you know, whatever you have on hand, comfrey, nettles, um, herbaceous plants, and kind of irrigating or fertigating as it's called, fertilizing while irrigating. Uh, but then also a lot of nitrogen fixing cover crops like legumes, peas, vetches, clovers, um, and then adding lots and lots of leaves, maybe some wood chips. And um, our plants have not complained to us yet. That's awesome. That's, I mean, that's very similar to how um, I add organic matter, mostly because the compost piles really far away and it spends a lot of winter being frozen solid. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. right. So it doesn't really do much over over winter and yeah. where we used to live was a much milder climate. So it would keep composting throughout winter. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So not having as much compost to deal with um, than what we're used to. So that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. But what are some of the challenges that, um, you know, you have for your growing space and how how do you manage some of those things in terms of like actually harvesting the seeds and um dealing with all of that because you know we talked about biennials and I've talked about biennials on on the podcast before and how we need to kind of protect them apart from my leek breeding project which is me trying to grow leeks without any sort of cover protection um which is weirdly going very well so far so it might be um you know an interesting um side topic later but in terms of like the the challenges of growing seeds in such a short climate because the majority of seeds are grown you know out west like pacific northwest maritime climate you know that they're not having to deal with these 
you know, massive temperature fluctuations that we are. So how are you dealing with some of those issues that are fairly normal for somebody that's growing seed? Yeah. Um, well, to comment on the leek breeding project, we're trying to do the same thing. So it does sound like something we should talk about in depth at some point. Yes. Um, because, yeah, the biggest the biggest challenge is for the um, crops that are sensitive to heavy, heavy frost is overwintering them and then putting them back out. And it's usually we don't have a root cellar right now. We've actually been digging pits and burying the stuff and we we plant replant it in buckets, mulch the the pit with leaves, and then cover that with something and it works really well for the most part. I mean sometimes we'll have flooding in the spring and you have to kind of bail everything out but um the the biggest challenge is i I would say you know celery has been a challenge um some varieties of kale have been a challenge. Um, we have successfully overwintered kale in the ground where we lined the kale plants with hay bales and then we put a covering over them for the winter time. And we did mulch with leaves uh, in the interior of those two kind of hay bale walls. Um, and that worked. That was great. So we got to overwinter it without digging it up. But with some of the things like celery and um yeah some leeks and some varieties of kale and cabbage um we have lost some even in even in cool storage where other things have made it like with celery we've last year we lost almost all the celery um it just it was just either too cold somehow it got too cold or too wet or it didn't take the transplant well so we're still trying to figure some of those things out i think that um it is a little bit of an evolution you have to figure out what works for you and your area and you know people with soils that drain faster might have more success overwintering something than people who have waterlogged soil um or soils that retain moisture or that get more wind or they're in a low spot so there's more cold air so there are just so many factors that go into it i think that um, experimentation is really the only way um, for you or anybody to um, um, know what they can and can't do. Um, of course, investing in um, certain infrastructure that can provide more reliably even, um, you know, um, temperatures and, and environments is always good, but it's not always uh, realistic. So, um, experimenting is good and you're going to fail at some things. Uh, so sometimes how we deal with problems is we fail and then learn. And sometimes we succeed and learn. <laughs> That's nice to do. That, that is nice. That is nice. I mean, with you kind of experimenting, do you find that you're also experimenting in terms of the varieties that you're trying to grow? So do you grow a number of different varieties of a plant and then kind of choose what you're going to work with and seed save because they grow better for where you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's definitely still an ongoing process. Usually, I mean, we'll add hundreds of varieties, you know, in a given year to just trial. 
and, you know, to overwinter and see how they do. And, um, so yes, absolutely. It's, it's a, it's totally all experimenting, trialing new things, seeing what works, um, hearing about something or reading about, you know, a particular variety, um, and, and seeing how it does. And then definitely that becomes part of the, you know, the standard grow outs and then we can add some more. We definitely, we're limited in what we can do because we are a, a single operation trying to grow such a wide variety of things. And there's a lot of cross pollination that can happen with like, let's say brassica oleracea, your, you know, cabbages and, and broccoli and stuff. So we're limited in how many varieties that we can bring in. We can experiment, uh, you know, unconditionally, but in the ones that actually make it and stay, it will be limited. So the ones that make it into our catalog and that will make it, we know are the ones that are tried and true. They are hardy and, and, you know, adaptive and very resilient. So that is, even though we don't have maybe the variety that some might have, we, um, it's reliable, which is great for us because that's really what we're looking for. We're looking to have, um, a few varieties of a lot of things. That's awesome. I think it's really important to be able to have that reliability built into your seeds locally as well, because that you're, I mean, you're ultimately able to provide the the conduit that's able to feed people locally. And I think that's that's such a fantastic role to be doing in, you know, agriculture as a whole, because we just don't talk about how important seed is. Yet all of us as gardeners and, you know, I'm sure everybody that's listening in here, like we've all bought seeds and we've all probably spent a small fortune on buying seeds. Um, But it's not a simple process to be able to produce seeds. And I know one of the questions that um, I've certainly been asked before from listeners on the podcast is how long does it actually take for somebody to produce seeds? And for for you guys as a, you know, a, a small seed company, and how, how long is it until you have a variety where you're like, yep, this this is the one that's going in the catalog. Like this one's our our rock star and needs to be there for people to buy um i think for some two years for some of them um some it's very apparent others i think because we do keep adding and um and adding and taking out um you know some things also come back around again to be trialed again but um you can tell you can tell a lot right away but with you know, different, you know, like we were talking about earlier, every year is so different in its weather patterns that, you know, we could add something to our catalog that's done really well for the past two years or three years or four years. And then all of a sudden it's a drought, an extreme drought, and it doesn't do as good where, you know, another one does a lot better. So it really is, it's ever evolving. And, um, the reality is you it's it you're hard pressed in a single variety especially one that's been highly selected and refined over time 
it's it's very difficult to make it resilient to all things. So, you know, that's why, you know, we and a lot of people are interested in land race varieties because there's a lot of genetic diversity. And so in any given year, uh, you know, the population will show so much diversity that whatever comes its way, it should weather the storm on the whole pretty well. Um, but otherwise, you know, you're never going to get a refined variety to do well always with maybe a few exceptions. I don't want to say never, um, but there is a phenomenon in genetics where you select one at the expense of another, so to speak. I don't think it's so black and white, but um, when you're selecting for one thing, especially if you do it heavily, then there's only so much that you can select for without compromising something else. So um, usually two years, three years, I would say is the short answer, but it is an evolving process because nature just always throws up things that we do not expect as she should, you know, that's just the way it is. That is very true. So I know we don't have super long left on the call and I wondered whether you would mind taking a bit of time to kind of talk about some of the tips that you might have to help gardeners who are struggling to find time to do all the things because I know a lot of my listeners are are working full time and you know managing that side of things and you know everything at home and trying to have a social life do all of the things some of us moved across country randomly (laughs) you know there's there's all the things that are sort of going going on but how how do you you know keep going with your farm and being able to do all of the things and how do you get the most out of your garden well I think that's a good question uh because I you know, we do this full time. I mean, we do uh, one of us works off the farm part time, but we we put in full time, you know, more than 40 hours a week. That's for sure. And um, we're always behind. So I do think it's like I do think it's this eternal phenomenon of there's always something to do, always something more to do. And there's just not the time. Um, so getting comfortable in that space is always good because, uh, you can get very stressed, um, with having a lot to do and not having the time to do it. And I personally feel that the ultimate, uh, purpose of gardening is to connect us to whatever you call it, spirit or, you know, the larger phenomenon that's happening. And so, it is important to be in a joyful space and take time to be appreciative. But um, to save time or to... Um, it's a really good question. <laughs> so I'm a huge fan of mulching. And since I've switched yes. to no-till, yes. I can't believe the amount of time that I'm saving now, like not having to weed. It's... Yeah it's such a huge difference yeah great and I think I did answer that in um in the little questionnaire that you gave me yeah mulching saves tons of time and it's one of those things that um has multiple benefits it saves time it suppresses weeds it 
saves water. It invites lots of different bugs. It, it increases for garden fertility. So, but specifically on time, it saves a lot of time. And I know we operate no-till as well, just like you. And, um, and I mean, I've weeded here and there the last couple of years, but weeding is not a huge part of our farm. Um, there are a lot of other things that are a huge part because we use mulches like transplanting, but, um, weeding is not a huge part. Um, so where I think a lot of gardeners, that is where they find themselves spending a lot of their time is weeding and probably watering. Um, mulching takes care of that in, in, you know, just a fraction of the time. So definitely would recommend that unless perhaps you're on a heavy clay soil, um, or something that holds a lot of water, then mulching can, organic matter can help loosen it, but you might have to use compost, uh, rather than whole leaves or wood chips because the compost is a finer grain and would allow more air to get in and, you know, mulching, especially if you use whole leaves like we do in some instances, um, is really effective at, at stopping, you know, the, the transpiration from the water from escaping the soil, um, and evaporating in the air. So unless you're on a heavy clay soil, uh, mulching is, works wonders and it's so nice on the feet. That's, that's so true. So <laughs> it's so nice what, it's cool and yeah what about planting density because that's another trick that people use to try and save time is by kind of squeezing more in what's your thoughts about that yeah if you can experiment and and come up with some great companion plants and companion planting schemes um you can fit a lot more food in a bed and you know sometimes um i would recommend I would recommend doing research, a little extra research when time allows on, you know, spacing, row spacing, because every um, kind of seed company or whoever you're learning spacing from kind of has a little bit different spacing. And I've seen people say to plant beans in rows as far as three feet apart. And um, you could get a whole nother row of beans in there. For sure, maybe too if if um if you really were zealous and or maybe you uh it was an early variety and you picked that one early and then and then planted a later variety uh you know next to it but it it might behoove your listeners to do some research on on row spacing because a lot of the generic stuff is much too far apart and meant for tractor cultivation where you have wheels trying you know big tractor wheels trying to get between crops um you know they'll say to plant corn four four feet apart um and you can plant corn a lot closer two feet you know the row spacing you know two feet i wouldn't probably wouldn't go less than that but um and that can grow a lot more stuff and you can grow pole beans up your corn and you can grow carrots at the feet of your peas and um companion planting is a wonderful way um and also just experimenting and learning about plant spacing and um, and timings, like fitting little herbs in between, you know, um, 
beans because the herbs would be planted early and the beans are planted late. So by the time the beans are big, you've already harvested the herbs. Um, doing some research on, on all of that stuff would definitely make the most out of a smaller space and even out of a larger space, we really cram it in, in our beds. And, um, I think that, I think that we can get in our three quarter acre field. I think we can grow about two acres worth of, um, worth of produce and, and seed crops, you know, if, if, depending, you know, if you were farming that with tractors. So it makes quite a bit of difference if you can, um, if you can maximize that space. That's amazing. So where can my listeners find out more about what you guys do and learn a bit more about your company? Um, our website is probably the only place because we are so hyper-local that um, you you probably won't find a flyer unless you live in Midcoast, Maine, or you lived in uh, the White Mountain area, which is where we were before this. So Boomy Davy, B H. O O M I D E V I Bumi Devi, which means Mother Earth or Earth Goddess. It actually means Earth Goddess, but Mother Earth is kind of the um, tempered uh, version. Uh, Bumi Devi Seeds dot com, and you can find information about uh, homegrown fertility, mulching, cover cropping, um, seeds, open pollinated seeds, hybrid seeds. We tried to really um, inject a lot of information into the site so that it could be a hub of information for people and clarify some of the questions we had when we were getting into it and still had even after we were doing it for, you know, a few years because the information out there is just very, can be very confusing. So uh, it's a one-stop shop for seeds, information, and... Um... Unfortunately, that is where the interview ended. But... I wanted just to provide a bit of a recap on some really great takeaways that came out of this interview. And Noah has got a lot of really great information available on the website. And his wife, Olivia, has taken some really great pictures. So you can see how their gardens grow and what the seeds that they're producing look like. It's a really great resource for you to go and check out. But some of the things that I really took away from this interview is about experimenting in your garden. And there's lots of different ways to manage your garden and manage soil health, right? I always say there's as many ways to grow a garden as there are people on this beautiful planet. And that is so true. And it's really worth experimenting in your garden. It might be you trying to figure out ways to overwinter some seeds so that you can save them and try growing them out again and doing a little bit of seed saving and stretching your comfort zone there. It might be that you are looking at growing more varieties or just experimenting with more um, varieties of something that you really enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be growing hundreds of different varieties and trialing. Obviously, you know, Noah and Olivia are doing this on a much bigger scale. I also like to experiment with lots of different varieties too. But again, I've got a, a larger scale that I can play about with. You could be adding more varieties and it could be as simple as just trying two new tomato varieties or a new pepper. 
maybe you're adding in some new lettuces or a different lettuce mix. Perhaps you are trialing some companion planting like Noah mentioned growing some peas with some carrots or you are adding in something else within your normal growing space. That is a really key strategy to be building resilience and biodiversity into your garden so you can really see what grows better for you and for your garden and experimenting more in the garden is going to help you learn as a gardener and figure out what things work best for not only where you are growing but also how you as a gardener are growing like we talked a little bit about some some tips that you could use to garden even if you're short on time and one of the things that I really took away was you know getting comfortable in the space that there is always a lot to do in a garden and there's always a lot of busy work right that we can deal with and it's really okay to to be behind there's lots of things that we can do in the garden and that bring us joy but also things that can take up our time and both of us use mulching and I loved the discussion around the ease of mulching and growing cover crops like composting in place like you don't need to have a compost pile you can absolutely grow crops that are going to build the fertility and the the biodiversity of the soil by using cover crops and that was just such a wonderful takeaway that I felt that it needed to be mentioned again like you can definitely think outside of the box when it comes to building soil fertility I've seen gardeners who have a compost pile that they add into the row like so wherever you are growing part of that bed is the compost pile so they'll build like a temporary compost composter there and things get added to that bed space and then at the end of the season everything is spread along that bed that's one way you could do it you could also add green manures and cover crops to grow they reduce the weeds as well as improving the soil health so there's lots of different ways to manage soil health and build fertility there's also lots of different ways that you can test and see how well your soil is doing so if you're here in the u.s definitely check out local university extension offices for soil testing services there's also some seed companies that offer soil testing as well and if you're outside of the US, you can just do a quick internet search and find out what soil testing services are nearby for you. And if you don't feel like you want to be sending things to a lab and you're worried that you're going to get this, you know, booklet of what the test results are and don't know what they mean most soil testing services will give you a breakdown of what those results mean but also give you actionable steps to help get your results back to the average range so and you know they're only a phone call or an email away to get some interpretation of those results so don't be afraid of sending things to a laboratory for testing and of course it's okay as well if you just want to 
get things off the shelf and do a little soil testing kit. There's lots and lots of them that are available. And I like to use those. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's people who don't like to use those. There's tons of videos that show you how to use them and um, lots of step-by-steps that are available too. So use the tools that are available to you and the techniques that work for you. There's nothing wrong with doing that there's also people who never test their soil ever and that's okay too so you grow the garden the way that you want to but also take a moment to check out boomy debbie seeds and see how they grow the seeds that they offer and learn a little bit more about noah and olivia and the farm that they have until next time i hope your garden grows beautifully let me know in the facebook group what things you are going to be trialing in your garden after listening to this episode.